And Jesus said, I am the truth. If we Christians really want to affect the world, we can't just talk about our faith. We've got to live our faith. We've got to live Jesus. We've got to live the truth who lives within us. Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On our last broadcast, we began a new series of teachings we are calling Sleuth. This series intends to answer critical questions about the Bible, the church, and our Christian faith. Today, David takes a deep dive into the parable of the wheat and tares in the second section of a message called Absolute Truth. So the question comes to those of us who follow Jesus. How do we answer those objections? How do we respond? I think there are responses. Here's the first one. Regarding oppression by the Christian church through the centuries, we own up to it. We own up to it. It happened. It's undeniable. The way we treated the Jews during the crusade time period is horrible. But I think we also answer, but you know, just because some people who say they were following Jesus didn't follow Jesus makes your position true. And we also need to remind them, you know, Jesus himself said in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tares that in his kingdom, there are going to be wheat, people who really do follow him, but the evil one's also going to uh, sow tares in the kingdom. There are going to be people who say they're Christians, but there aren't any Christian more than the man in the moon. And the way you'll determine the wheat from the tares, Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 13, is by their fruit. So if you have followers of Jesus who are authorizing oppression and abuse and murder and forced conversion, you got to at least scratch your head and say, I wonder if they're a tear. It happened, but were they really followers of Jesus? And also Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 23 and 24, he said, not all those who call me Lord, Lord are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe they really weren't followers of Jesus, and they simply used the Bible and their Christian faith to oppress for their own personal means, their own personal gratification. But you need to own up to the fact that it happened. But at least raise the objection, maybe they weren't really followers of Jesus, for they certainly weren't following his teachings. Also, the next step you need to take is to relativize the relativists. Say that with me. Relativize the Relativist. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. When people come to you and say, there's no such thing as absolute truth, here's what your response should be. That's an absolute statement. You just made an absolute statement regarding something that you object to as absolute. And it suddenly puts them in a box where they can't respond. So relativize the relativists. Challenge their understanding of absolute truth. Moreover, push them on the philosophical law of (laughs) non-contradiction. What in the world does that mean? Well, any person who's ever studied philosophy and debate knows you cannot have the law of non-contradiction working in your debate. So therefore, when when you're talking to people who especially object to religion and say that it is false and it is demanding and abusive, well, you need to come back with this asking, well, something's got to be true, doesn't it? I mean, if there is religion in the world, one religion has to be true if they contradict one another. So in the Christian faith, for example, every other world's religion believes you must earn your relationship with God by your works. 
Works righteousness. Every other world's religion. Look at them. Islam, it's obedience to the Quran. Judaism, it's obedience to the Torah. Hinduism, it is your karma. That inestimable theologian, Bono, was perfectly right. Wadney Bono, when he said, there are two world's religions, karma or grace. Karma is you get what you deserve. That's the heart of Hinduism. A huge portion of the society are the Dalit class, the lowest class. And they're there because of their karma. So nobody tries to lift them out of that because they're simply getting what they deserve from a previous life. And those who are wealthy and powerful, they're getting what they deserve from a previous life. I can't speak for you, but from my own standpoint, I'm certainly glad that God relates to me not by karma, but by grace. I'm so glad God doesn't give me what I deserve, and I'm not caught in an endless cycle of reincarnation having to prove myself with the next life. But, but all of those religions are works righteousness. The only one that stands juxtaposed to them is the Christian faith, which says we can't have a relationship with God by our works. We can never do enough. We can never do enough to be holy in the sight of a holy God. That God has to do it for us. There are two worlds of religions, do or done. Either I do it or God has done it for me in Christ. And I'm forgiven by grace through faith. Now, one of those has to be true. The law of non-contradiction demands that one of those be true. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul cries out, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. In the gospel accounts, there's over and over the account of Jesus being raised from the dead. But in the Quran, in the Surah, chapter 4, verse 157, it says, Jesus did not die on a cross and was not raised from the dead. One of those has to be true. The law of non-contradiction demands one of those to be true. So present that. What do you do with two contradictory standpoints in religion? Here's the answer they usually give. Well, you need to understand that religion is like a huge elephant. And around the elephant are blind people. And one blind person's holding the tail of the elephant. And another blind person's holding the leg of an elephant. And the other's holding the tusk of an elephant. The other's holding the trunk of an elephant. They're all holding the same elephant, God, but they're blind and they just don't see one another. That's the truth. Here's how you answer. How do you know there's an elephant there? (laughs) You're demanding that there's someone who has objective truth, who has sight, and who's able to see an elephant and all those blind people around it. Then their objection is, okay, well, all religions are wrong. I'll just become an atheist. When you especially in our culture, talk to that ever-increasing and burgeoning population, here's some other things with which you can challenge them. First of all, ask them honestly. Is there a daddy wound in your life? Some, many of you, are suffering from daddy wounds. It's hard for you to call God father because of the memories of your daddy. Professor Paul Vitz, V-I-T-Z, Ph.D. professor at the University of Michigan, did a study of all the major atheists through the centuries who've influenced thought regarding atheism. In every single case, there was either a daddy womb or a trauma that happened in their lives that made them angry against God. Everyone. Darwin lost a daughter, which moved him away from faith toward his own views. 
say to them, be honest with me. Is there something that's happened to you that's caused you to hate God? Then the next question that I've asked through the years that people who are atheistic or antagonistic to the Christian faith hate me asking, but I nevertheless do it. (laughs) I ask this question. Is this more about sexual license than your real belief or unbelief in God? Is your real reason for denying God because you want to have sex with whomever you want to have sex whenever you want to have sex? Come on now, be honest with me. And on more than one occasion, I get a wry smile and a bit of an embarrassed look as people own up to the truth. A good number of folks don't want to believe in God because they don't want to be held accountable to a holy God who demands holiness in the way they live their lives, especially their sex lives. Also, point people to nature. To the design of nature. You know, the Middle Evil Ages didn't have a bunch of doofuses who understood natural law. I mean, people like Aquinas and um, people of great uh, intellect came up with that idea. Point them to natural law. Point them to nature. One of the greatest thinkers in American scientific life today is Francis Collins. Uh, He was an atheist, antagonistic against God. And then he slowly but surely started looking at nature. (laughs) He looked at the beauty of nature. And when he was able to behold beauty, it forced him to ask the question, well, if there's beauty, how can I define beauty unless there's also ugliness? And therefore, there must be some kind of natural standard that allows me to consider something beautiful from where does that come? The whole idea of nature shows the existence of absolute truth. How many of you ever sailed? A few of you have. You ever sailed at midnight? A few of you have. Aren't you glad when you sail at midnight, there's a north star? A fixed star in the sky that can always tell you where you are and to where you're going. That's why we call it true north. If you needed emergency heart surgery, would you not want an emergency heart surgeon who believes in absolute truth? Do you want him or her cutting on your heart, wondering what to do next? You want someone who believes there's a right way to do things. With the whole idea of the Big Bang, Postmodernists believe that in eternity, and, and this is an atheistic view too, that somehow, someway, all the elements came together and produced the first atom that then began evolution. But most every scientist today, and Francis Collins says, don't let anybody kid you that all the scientists today are atheists. He says 40% are theists, many of those committed Christians. And the Big Bang has been the adopted theory now of the scientific community. Because they know it happened, but it also explains for them how this world began. And here's the argument you've got to present to people. If you don't believe in a Big Bang, then how did something come from nothing? How did something come from nothing? So even most scientists now are saying the Big Bang caused the beginning of our world. Could not the Big Bang be caused by a big God? 
who in Genesis 1-1 created the heavens and the earth with a single word. Also force the skeptic to look at justice. To look at justice. W.H. Auden, one of the most famous poets in our American life in the 1930s, was an out-and-out atheist. And one day he didn't have anything to do, so he went to a movie in a German area of town. Now, you know, back in the 30s, during the movies times, they would take clips and show what's going on throughout the world. One of those clips was the Germans absolutely abusing, killing, murdering Jews in concentration camps. And in this theater that was largely in a German section of town, Auden was amazed that at that moment when they showed that film clip, most everybody uproariously applauded. And it bothered his heart. He said, God, how can this be? And that made him begin a search toward God that was found in his relationship with him through an understanding of justice. He said, the Nazis can't get away with it. Dear friends, ISIS can't get away with it. They can't behead human beings, potentially even children, and get away with it. Are you aware in the last 10 years, 50% of all homicides in America are unsolved? Are you really satisfied that they get away with it? Or or might you believe that in the meta-narrative of the Scripture that God holds everyone accountable? That everyone one day will appear before him and perfect justice will exist. But perfect justice can't exist without perfect truth. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Here's how he came to faith. He looked at a crooked line. And when he looked at that crooked line, he realized, if I can define that line as crooked, there must be such a thing as a what? A straight line. So he said, from where does that come? It has to come from a God who defines things as straight and crooked. Also, let me encourage you to look at the person of Jesus. You see, the Christian faith's not a mere morality of following rules and regulations. The Christian faith's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who's forgiven us of our sins. And the text I just read to you, John 1.1 says that this Jesus is perfect logic. He's perfect truth, and he came to this earth as man to show us that perfect truth. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If my teachings abide in you, if they rest in you, if they live in you, and I live in you, and we're connected in union life, you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. How does Jesus living within us set us free? Because when we know he loves us, we've confessed our sins, and he becomes the most important thing in our lives. Dear friends, let me tell you, going into the new year, don't make a New Year's resolution to quit drinking, smoking, or watching pornography, or whatever you know is godless. It won't work. The power of sin is the law. It doesn't work to simply say, I won't do this anymore. Here's the way you overcome addictions. It's the only way I know of in all of my years in ministry. You've got to love something more than the addiction. Right? Anybody out there who knows what I'm talking about? You've got to love something more than the addiction. And when Jesus enters your heart and his teachings become a part of who you are and his ultimate perfect truth becomes your truth, you know that truth. You know Jesus. And he sets you free. He becomes the master passion of your life more than your addictions. Then in John 16, 13, Jesus said, when my spirit comes and lives within you, My spirit who lives within you will lead you to all truth. He'll point you to me because I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. 
And before Pilate, that's what he meant when he said, I've come into the world for this very purpose. I was born for this very purpose, to bear witness to the truth so that people will know there is truth. He was speaking to the Greco-Roman world at that time, and Pilate, as the representative, shrugged and said, what is truth? And Jesus said, I am the truth, which leads to my final point. If we Christians really want to affect the world, we can't just talk about our faith. We've got to live our faith. We've got to live Jesus. We've got to live the truth who lives within us. In that Greco-Roman world where absolute truth was mocked and there was a postmodern mindset much like today, that mindset was changed over 400 years. Why? Because of the church of Jesus Christ and Christians living Jesus. How did they do it? Several ways. First of all, with slavery being in preponderance in the Roman Empire, the Christians loved slaves and invited them into the church as equal participants in the family of God. With women who were denigrated, long before the feminist movement ever started, Christians knew women should not be denigrated, and they were invited into the Christian church as equal participants in the kingdom of God, given leadership in the church, giving teaching responsibilities in the church. And that's what Paul meant when he said, In the church, Galatians 3.28, we're not slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. And the Roman Empire took note. There were the babies discarded because they were inconvenient to the Roman Empire, put on garbage heaps. And what did the Christian church do? Went from garbage heap to garbage heap, taking those babies and adopting them into their families. And the Roman Empire noted it. And there were the plagues that swept through the Roman Empire on two different occasions, killing hundreds of thousands. As the Romans fled to other villages to get safety, the Christians stayed, and they ministered to the broken, the hurting, the deprived, and the needy. The same thing can happen today. If we would stand for justice, care for the orphan, give water to the thirsty, feed the hungry, speak out against genocide, and live the truth of Jesus within us. That, dear friends, is the answer to postmodern thought. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about the difference between ability and availability. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp, holding a sign that said, hungry, we'll work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. 
Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's great being with you, Jen. Well, in this morning's Moment of Hope, you titled your Davidism, God is not looking for ability, but availability. So true. And people need to realize it because oftentimes followers of Jesus think, well, I don't really have much to give to him. And therefore, they hesitate in doing whatever they could do simply because they don't think they have the gifts to do it. Again, nothing could be farther from the truth because God is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. Two biblical examples come to mind. First of all, Samuel, as a young child, keeps hearing a voice calling out to him. He runs to Eli, his spiritual mentor, if you will, and Eli finally says, just stop and listen and hear what the voice is saying to you. And then Samuel goes back, hears the voice again, and simply says, here I am. I'm your servant. Use me. And God used him mightily as one of the great leaders in Israel, indeed, maybe the most powerful of all the judges that Israel ever had. The second example comes from Isaiah. When he is lifted up into the heavenly courts in Isaiah 6, God tells him about the rebellious people in Israel who need his voice to go speak to them. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then heavenly coals touch his tongue, and he turns into a powerful proclaimer of gospel truth to his generation. But in both of those illustrations, we have two men, Samuel and Isaiah, simply saying to God, here I am, send me, do whatever you want with my life, I'm available, not looking at their ability, but looking at their availability, and God used them both mightily. We should be like Samuel and Isaiah. It doesn't matter how gifted we are or may not be. Our call is simply to say to God, I'm available. Here I am. He can use anyone for his glory who simply takes that stand. Let me say it again, Jen. God uses not our ability, but our availability. May I encourage everyone today just to say, here I am, Lord. Use me, send me to wherever you want me to go for your glory. Well, one of my favorite modern day examples of this is your wife, Marilyn. And when she wasn't able to get pregnant, she was available to serve those who were easily able to get pregnant. And this is my favorite story that you share about about her. She was on Uh, unable to have children at that point. We waited six years before our first child could come, and it was a long, hard wait. We were told by doctors we would probably never have children, but she believed. She thought God had a child for us, and during that waiting time period, she just said, Lord, I'm available. And so God sent her to the Crisis Pregnancy Center in town where you just mentioned girls could look at their boyfriends and become pregnant, and she ministered to them faithfully and indeed had one situation where a young OBGYN came in. He was interning here in Charlotte and was struggling with this whole abortion debate. And Marilyn didn't have sonograms back then, showed him the model of what happens from the moment of conception through the first trimester, second and third trimesters. He totally changed his view on abortion. Now he lives in Missouri. And as Missouri has passed some pro-life causes, he's actually gone before the Supreme Court and argued the case pro-life. Why? 
because a lady who said, I'm available, Lord, spent some time in a crisis pregnancy center here in Charlotte and was used mightily by Jesus mm-hmm. to transform the life of a young intern, now a doctor who's argued pro-life before the Supreme Court. Amazing. So inspiring. Thank yeah. you so much, David. And thank you, listeners. Please go to momentsofhopechurch.org to receive a daily written moment of hope from me. Subscribe there. It's free of charge. From my heart to yours to begin each day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We'd love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the underground church in the Middle East.